This episode of Desert Island Dishes is brought to you in partnership with the independent, family-run butcher, H.G. Walter. Now, I'm particularly excited about this because for over 10 years, I have been a customer of H.G. Walter for both my cooking jobs and also for at home too. They are one of the most respected butchers in the UK, supplying some of the best chefs and restaurants in the country. So it's quite cool to know that you are getting restaurant quality meat at home. And I know I've said this a million times before, but if you start with good ingredients, your life as a cook is so much easier. You barely have to do anything for it to taste delicious. And we know that good quality meat is more important than ever. If you're anything like me, you are thinking more and more about the provenance of the food you eat. And so having a butcher you can trust like HG Walter is just a very comforting thing. Also, never underestimate the knowledge of a butcher. If you don't know how to cook something, ask when you're in there. They know so much. They can advise about cooking times, the weight you need, and they'll always have delicious ideas for how they like to serve something. I found this kind of information absolutely invaluable when I was starting out as a chef. So I am thrilled to be telling you all about HG Walter today. They're based in London, but they deliver nationwide and you can find out more at www.hgwalter.com. Thank you very much. Hi, I'm Margie Nomura and welcome to the Desert Island Dishes podcast. This is the podcast where every week I ask my guests to choose their seven desert island dishes. These range from finding out about the dish that most reminds them of their childhood, the best dish they've ever eaten, and of course, the last dish they would choose to eat before being cast off to the desert island. The question is, what would you choose as your last meal? Hi, how are you all? It's been a little while, but we are back with a mini-series to tide you over whilst we're working very hard behind the scenes here at Desert Island Dishes. But I really missed you all. I missed doing the podcast. I have been very busy over at the newsletter, Dinner Tonight, which, honestly, I love doing so much. It's like getting to write a cookbook, but one that gets delivered recipe by recipe. And there are now over 20,000 of you signed up, which is unbelievable and completely mind-blowing to me. I'm actually doing a cook-along next week for paid members of the newsletter with the brilliant Romy Gill, which is going to be so great. So make sure you're signed up to get involved with brilliant things like that. Now for today's episode, they say you should never meet your heroes, but in all honesty, I just haven't found that to be true. I would say always try and meet your heroes and if possible, interview them for a podcast. I do feel like I do have to slightly apologise for how much I fangirled over Claudia. But honestly, I just felt like she deserved to know how brilliant she is. And I think we just don't tell people that enough to their faces. We often say it behind their backs, but it, you know, it can be a bit embarrassing, as you will hear, to say it to people's faces. But meeting Claudia and recording this was definitely a career high for me. It was a really special afternoon where we went round to hers and she made a delicious cake and we drank mint tea and gossiped before we started recording. So I really hope you enjoyed today's episode and thank you so much for listening. My guest today is Claudia Roden. Described as a food writer who never goes out of fashion, she began collecting recipes in 1956 while a student in London. The Suez crisis of that year turned many people from Egypt into refugees. Preserving the food culture of the Jewish community was as much practical as it was emotional. 
These recipes led to her debut masterpiece, A Book of Middle Eastern Food, which really cemented Claudia's future as one of the greatest food writers we've ever known. Her book revolutionised Western attitudes to the cuisines of the Middle East, and her later books have been similarly received. Her book of Jewish food has been described as the richest and most sensuous encyclopedia of Jewish life ever set in print. Her books have been loved by not only home cooks, but also have laid the foundation for many of the most ambitious professional kitchens and heavily influenced some of the most well-known chefs working today. From the River Cafe to Ottolenghi, Alistair Little and Morrow to name just a few. Claudia's talent for mixing up the scholarly with the practical is what has really set her apart. Often described as an anthropologist, as well as historian, essayist and poet, her books are as much about culture and anthropology as they are about recipes. But she says she doesn't follow scholarly rules and didn't go to university. She is a food writer through and through who simply finds a dish and wants to learn all about it. What is clear is that she is the master of Middle Eastern and Mediterranean flavours and a hero for the industry and people who love food. Welcome, Claudia. Oh, thank you for so much for saying what you said. That's lovely of you. No, That's that, very I'm, kind. I'm sorry that that was a very long introduction, but I did apologize to you in advance that it was going to be because it's honestly such an honor to have you on Desert Island Dishes. You are one of my favorite writers of all time and probably the person mentioned most on Desert Island Dishes. So I'm delighted to have you here today. Yeah. So much of your life and career has been spent traveling the world and gathering stories and recipes. The lockdowns, I imagine, were difficult for you in terms of clipping your traveling wings. But at the end of this podcast, we are going to send you to a desert island. And I wondered, how does the thought of being alone on an island make you feel? I'm used to solitude. Okay. So I don't really mind it. And I'm glad especially at that time after the COVID, to be outside, yes. to be in nature. Because uh, at my age, we weren't allowed out, really, because we were vulnerable. Mm. And we, I could only go out before half past seven in the morning or after half past seven at night, mm. and I'd go to the heath then. <laughs> So did you find it a very difficult time, lockdown? No, not at all. Okay, <laughs> because you wrote your book. I wrote my book. Mm. And what because of having a garden, mm. I had my family coming all the time and we put out three tables outside because there are three households. And all my grandchildren who are grown up, they were at university or they were working and my children... We're all working at home. Mm. So they were cooking because that was the one thing they could do. And I was cooking all the time. And uh, I would give them recipes to retry. Oh, wow. And so they would come and bring their dish. Uh, and I've never seen them as often as I did then. Oh. And so I did not feel the, the difficulty because also I couldn't go shopping, but I managed to get, you know, all the neighbors were shopping for me. And I did find a place where older people could come before eight. Mm. So I'd go there at seven okay. in the morning. So yeah, having all of your neighbors do your shopping, were you a bit disappointed when the lockdowns ended? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> With so much to talk about, Let's dive into the first desert island dish. And that's a dish that most reminds you of your childhood. 
Well, there are, as you can imagine, many different uh, dishes that remind me of my childhood. But the one that reminds me of Egypt very much is fulmedames. Mm. Fulmedames is broad beans mm. that you eat with a dressing of olive oil, garlic and lemon and a little bit of cumin, a little bit of chili. And it's really street food. We didn't eat it at home. It is street food. It's poor food, but it is the national dish of Egypt. And after having been thrown out of Egypt because of the war with Israel in 1956, I had a huge longing for Egypt, and the memories were powerful. And somehow when you think you can't go back to a place, especially of your childhood, it becomes hugely important. Mm. But then I could go back, and I've been back a lot. And was it how you remembered it? Well, it's different. (laughs) It's different because there are hundreds more people there Mm. now, not hundreds, millions, in the cities. We could see the Nile and, and the boats from the window, but now you can't see anything. There's buildings everywhere. It's mainly that uh, people from the countryside have come to live to, in the cities, and you can hardly walk on the pavement. You have to walk in the street uh-huh. among the cars sometimes. But uh, I loved Egypt before, mm. and I loved it going back. I uh, The... The smell of the marketplace where you buy the full medames for me was really paradise and mm. eating it there. What is the smell of the market? Can you describe it? Yes. First of all, there is the smell of, of lamb roasting because mm. some people can afford kebabs, but not many. And, uh, uh, of course, it's the country of the best falafel in the world. Mm -hmm. In Cairo, they call it tameya. There's a lot of frying, but the smell of garlic, the smell of cumin and coriander. Mm -hmm. And there are the smells that are just Egypt. And, of course, there is also the air. It's a kind of warmth. Uh, Every place has an, an air That is different. Mm. And so there, I felt like a fish coming back to home waters. Oh, that's amazing. And one of the things that I read was that as a child, you would go with your large extended family to the dunes near Alexandria, which sounded amazing. What kind of food would you take on those picnics? I mean, we loved picnics. We always were a huge crowd together because that was the way of life. And uh, it was mainly extended family, but a huge extended family. Uh, my father was a, one of ten. Mm. My mother was one of six. But uh, one of my father's sisters had 18 children. Oh, yeah. my goodness, 18? And 18? so we had a lot of cousins and, uh, and a lot of friends. Mm. And so uh, going to the sea was all absolutely uh, marvellous and happy. One of the things at a certain time, I'm not sure what time of year it was, it was a time that the quails Mm. came. They came over the Mediterranean every year and they would fall on the beaches. That was where, you know, they had come through Cyprus, through all the countries, 
even Spain, across the Mediterranean. They were so tired putting, and then there were nets to catch them on the beach. And so there were men who would come, pluck them, and cook them on fires. But we did always, on our picnics, there were always the traditional things, the same things. There could be what we called egga, but... Others, Arabs, call it aja, and it was like a thick omelette. Could be a meat omelette with minced meat, or could be every kind of vegetable. And always stuffed vegetables were the kind of thing that, that you took on a picnic mm -hmm. as well. The second desert island dish, Claudia, what's the first dish you learned to cook? It wasn't something that I learned to cook, but to make. When I was quite young, uh, we did have a cook, but uh, my mother had taught the cook to cook our dishes. Our dishes were mainly Syrian, but also Turkish as well, because three of my grandparents had come from Syria and um, a grandmother from Istanbul. But when my parents entertained, which quite often, some of my aunts would come to help doing some of the food. They would bring their cook as well. So the cooks would be in the kitchen making uh, with a preparation, chopping and peeling and doing things. And my aunts and my mother would do the little things like stuffed vine leaves mm. and uh, little pastries, you know, little cigars or filo. And they would give me, for instance, to do little balls of uh, ground almonds, just a paste mm. of ground almonds, sugar and rose water. Mm. With not, no, you didn't need just hardly any water, a few tablespoons or teaspoons because the almonds have oil mm. and just by working the almonds you bring out the oil and it is, it's a paste and I would make those balls and I would roll them in sugar in granulated sugar and for me that was my job. Is there I a did. particular name for those? We called it uh, amandine mm. but actually I found other amandines in the south of France, but they're quite different. Oh, wow. But it is a word that, because we spoke French, mm. we use that word. Okay. And do you remember even from that really early age, were you very interested in food when you were doing that? Was it something that excited you? It was really exciting just to be part of the women gossiping yeah. maybe <laughs> <laughs> your ticket into the gossip yes <laughs> you came to london and studied art after going to school in paris and the food landscape that you describe in london at the time sounded pretty bleak i think you've actually described it as horrible <laughs> it was yes it Tell was horrible <laughs> and uh, now i can say it because of course london is almost the capital of the world for good food mm. but it was so horrible and and we wondered how people could eat this, I must say. But uh, thinking of the foods that I would have, for instance, in canteens, mm. anywhere, it was all beige or brown. And you couldn't identify what it was. You know, they were stews. You couldn't see what it was. And there was all these 
very light beige would be macaroni cheese and cauliflower cheese. Claudia, I won't have you say anything bad about macaroni and cheese. That's, uh... <laughs> I love it now, I must say. You but can a bad, make a, a wonderful... Bad, yeah, a bad yes. one is bad, isn't yes. it? Yep. You did it during that time, even amongst the bleakness, you found little gems in a shop in Camden called Mrs. Harrell, where you could get halloumi and feta and couscous, and you even found a workshop in Kentish Town where they made phyllo. I mean, it yeah. is so hard to imagine now that that was a rarity but that must have been very exciting for you to find those places oh you know we were just couldn't believe when we found them we were there all the time I remember in the first book I wrote courgettes are baby marrows people did not know a courgette and you couldn't buy one and uh, they were marrows and nobody had seen let alone cook an aubergine but I also remember writing that a pita bread is a bread with a pouch in it (laughs) somebody how could you have a pouch in a bread it's impossible and I gave a recipe for a pouch but also telling people paper thin dough that was phyllo and we called it phyllo because now I've conver- I've gone back to Philo because that's how people know it. Mm. And the, the shop where, or rather the pastry shop where I got the Philo being made in front of you, if you wanted, you could go upstairs to where they were making it. They were just pulling it, uh, making the dough, pulling it and making it thinner and thinner and then setting it on a... like a sort of uh, table, uh, canvas table with heat coming from underneath. So it set quickly. And they spelt it Philo, P-H-I-L-L-O. And so uh, it's the same with so many things. Now, it is the, for instance, I think the Lebanese who sell frike, they call it. Mm. But we in Egypt and other parts of the Arab world, we say ferik. It's really ferik, but the the Lebanese and Syrian, their pronunciation is frike. Mm, and so, so I still find it hard to, when I buy it, to say I want frike. Yeah, <laughs> oh God, that's so interesting. It's, as you say, it's wherever you first discover something that is set in your mind is how it should yeah. be said. And but. here it is who are the products come from and it is their spelling yeah so in 1956 the Suez crisis took place and your parents amongst many others were forced to flee Egypt this was the inspiration for you beginning to collect recipes and the flavors it was all nostalgia that drove you and a fear that these memories through food would be lost You say that at this time there wasn't a single Egyptian cookery book and you began this labour of love that would become your first book with the feeling that this was food you'd never get to eat again. Yeah, I mean, that's incredible. It was uh, something that to me was the most important thing that I could ever do. Mm. I was working at by then at Alitalia, the the Italian Airlines. Mm. But weren't you doing that in secret because you, your dad didn't want oh, any yes, of you his friends that. to know? <laughs> <laughs> yes, because uh, when my parents came over, they went to this center of refugees, and uh, the 
people where I was staying with two brothers who are also students here mm. uh, in a little flat not far from here. The, the couple who rented us the flat just came and said, we know what's happening and tell your parents to come and they can stay until they're on their feet mm. for free. That's we don't want them to pay anything. When my father went to say, what are we going to do? Mm. He was lucky in every way because somebody gave him a table and a chair to start his business oh, wow. and a telephone. And he started phoning his other refugees all over saying, is there anything you can send me that I can sell here? Oh, wow. <laughs> they oh, were merchants in an Egypt. Man. And, in and so they went on here trading in the way now we would call it a middleman. Mm. <laughs> but, um, no, but he but, sounded like an amazing man because he, he, lo he lost everything. When yes, he, came he lost absolutely here. everything. And he just started again. And, yes, and he started again. He didn't speak English that well. But uh, he was told, rather, at the refugee centre, your wife and your, and your daughter can work. We can find them jobs. And he was so completely shamed. He said they will never work. He was so proud to say, if I can't mm. protect them and, uh, and support them, he felt that was terrible. Mm. How did he feel about the success that you went on to have when it could no longer be a secret that you were doing yeah, this amazing he work? He was really happy, he... but he was unhappy when somebody heard that I was uh, working at Alitalia. Okay, that I was a different kind of thing. Yeah. Okay, <laughs> but, uh, but he was very happy, but he wasn't all that happy in that they lived very nearby, mm. walking distance, you know, 10 minutes walk or five minutes walk. And uh, he expected me to be always there okay. because we, young daughters, even married daughters, uh, uh, would be there. Once he said, what is a daughter for? <laughs> but he did say, a daughter is the sunshine of the family. And I did feel, yeah, because I did love him a lot, that I was happy to be the sunshine. Yeah. It was a nice thing, but that meant you were the nurturer. Okay. And so you had to be available. And But also nurturing food was the big thing, mm. is giving food. And it is a big thing for uh, making people happy, mm. bringing people together. They always had the Friday night dinner. Uh, they went on living in this bubble of refugees for a long, long time. And so that is where I got my recipes from, from refugees mm. for quite a long time. Lots of uh, relatives and friends couldn't stay in England. They couldn't stay in France. They went all over the place. They went to Latin America. They went literally... I've got relatives all over the world now. It's our diaspora. Mm. And so uh, for me, it was a way, first of all, of uh, getting this recipe. I became like an obsessed collector. I just wanted a <laughs> recipe, you know, and a good recipe was fantastic. And finding one that I didn't know was mm. more than fantastic. Well, And so what was your process? You'd get given the recipe and then you'd test it? Were there ones that yes. you tried and you sort of I did have to try or? a lot. <laughs> the thing is when I was collecting recipes, because people would say, this is from my grandmother 
in Izmir. This is from my mother in Istanbul. This is from Livorno. There were even people. And so I realized who we were. Mm. For me, it was a way of discovering who we were. Mm. But because I had so many recipes that also some of them were similar, a bit similar, but they had a different flavor, for instance. Everybody had baklava, everybody had mahalabeya of a kind. They would call it malabi, they would call it a different name. But they had a different flavor mm. where we would put rose water, someone else would put orange blossom. and uh, But people stuck to the recipes of their community, mm. where they were from. They wouldn't change a single thing. Wow. People would go to dinner and they would be shocked if there was the smallest change. Oh, really? They would say, what's this? You wow. know, Because it was such an important part of identity. It was, but it was for everyone in the world, mm, actually. Yeah. But in this case, they did not want to deviate. I read that you said in, in Egypt previously, people wouldn't share recipes because they were very proud of their yes. family recipes. And if they did share one, they'd, they'd a put a per yeah, mistake on purpose so that yes. you didn't quite have the recipe. Oh, yes. Which is exactly. funny to think. And, uh, but I got a an email from somebody in America, or rather somebody sent it to me. Mm. It was because I'm not on social media. They yeah. saw it on social media. And he said, Claudia, I wouldn't trust Claudia's recipe because she got several recipes from my, uh, my grandmother-in-law. Yeah. And he had divorced, actually. Oh. <laughs> and he was, uh, he was the grandson of one of the Portuguese dictators or something. Oh, or something, and he said because she would have given her mistakes. It's oh. <laughs> <laughs> funny to think. Let's pause there and talk about the third desert island dish. What's the best dish you've ever eaten? Uh, of course, I've eaten so many, so many thousands and cooked them as well. So it is difficult. But one that came to my mind mm. when, as soon as I thought of it, and it was a uh, seafood in Spain, mm. in uh, Catalonia, in uh, the Costa Brava. And it was actually when I was with uh, the crew of uh, uh, the television series, uh, Claudia Roden's Mediterranean Cookery. But actually, we weren't yet filming because it was reconnaissance. Okay. And we went to see where we were going to film. And, uh, and there was this extraordinary dish which the chef was cooking. And uh, it had all kinds of seafood, including lobster and, and prawns and shellfish. But what was wonderful... It was two sauces that were are particularly Catalan sauces. They're famous for many sauces, but these go into this stew, which is called zarzuela, and it means opereta mm -hmm. or, or musical comedy, something like that, because I don't know why. Yeah. You start with the sauce. The sauce is uh, fried onions and tomatoes always, and that's called the sofrito. And then uh, there is a sauce at the end, which you put in, which is called, it's a picada. Mm. 
Mm. Uh, picada is a pounded uh, ground almond or pounded almonds to a paste with some fried bread and plenty of garlic. Mm. And so that comes in, you put it in at the sauce at the end, but part of the greatness of the dish to me was there is a lot of uh, alcohol okay. that goes in, brandy. Mm. And so for me, uh, it was just marvellous. And the eating of it was marvellous. And uh, whenever I went to Catalonia several times, and I was always looking for a zarzuela. You'd written this masterpiece, which was a huge enterprise. I think you started it in 1956 and it came out in 1968. You'd written it before you went to the publishers, I think, and yet every publisher that you sent it to came back saying yeah. yes. Not everyone, but almost. <laughs> almost everyone. Uh, that must have been very exciting. It was. It was. I did feel by then that there was something valuable. Mm. Uh, I didn't at the beginning because... Oh, you didn't? No, because when I told people what I was doing, they would say, what are you doing? And I'd say, I'm collecting Middle Eastern recipes. When I decided to turn it into a book, mm. they Sorry. would say, oh, why don't you paint? But mostly people said... Is it going to be, not most people, but one or two would say things like, is it going to be eyeballs and testicles? Because that was the idea. People had the idea of Arab food or Middle Eastern food. Mm -hmm. The Middle East was very unpopular then. Well, because there was war, Mm -hmm. it was the enemy, and then there was sort of wars about petrol prices, oil prices. And uh, the idea of Middle Eastern food was the food of the desert. Mm. And so it was uh, the kind of things that Lawrence of Arabia would say or travellers to the Arab world at the time. There were many. Mm. And they came back with stories of a mound of rice with with a lamb on top in a sea of fat, you know, all kinds of of uh, uh, images. Mm. And uh, nobody would want to eat that. So I would say, oh, well, I'm not going to say what I'm doing right now mm. because to write about food was not pop. The last thing mm. to do. Which is so interesting now when we look at the landscape that we currently have. It's incredible to think that there was a time yeah. when it just wasn't Well, you couldn't talk about Mm. food because you were uh, embarrassing people. Mm. And I do remember then when I'd go to a party or something and they'd say, what are you doing now? And I'd say, well, I'm writing a cookbook. And then immediately they were looking elsewhere. How can I run? You know, oh, because it's so embarrassing. What how are they going? Did, to... How did you feel when you told people that that's what you were doing, and they made those jokes about the certain types of food? Did it did it put you off? No, no. because I did it for me, mm. really, and I really put so much into it. But I also then, because I became interested in the history, at the time to understand why are all these dishes similar or not similar, what makes them different, that I had started going to libraries in uh, universities. But also 
I wanted to tell people, you know, it's not just horrible food, it's good food, but it comes from a culture that is beautiful. And for me, it was a culture that I began to love when I left. Uh, so uh, when I uh, was collecting recipes, I was collecting everything else as well mm. because people were so glad to talk to somebody because we were all in a sea now of the world, a bit lost, some mm. of us, not me because I had gone to art school here and and I had already been part of here. And, and they told me their stories mm. and their stories to now to me, I'm aghast <laughs> because... You know, it sounds out of this world that this could happen, mm. <laughs> the way it happened. So for me, it was putting who we were a bit into, into the book. And so I had all these stories, but at the beginning, the book didn't sell at all. I know, I read that. There's and only 3,000 copies oh, were 3, printed. 3,000 still quite a lot. It's quite a lot. You'd still be the number one Sunday Times bestseller, I think, with that, <laughs> really? wouldn't you? But then you said that whilst it was a hard copy, it didn't yeah. sell that well. But as soon as it went into paperback, that's yeah. when things began to change. And I wondered, was there a moment when you realised yes. that things had begun to change? Yes, I did realise when young people who were at university were buying it because I would hear and because for them it was they were traveling mm. and so they were traveling it was the beginning of young people being all over the world with a rucksack and I would see them when I traveled afterwards would you? they would be in Greece and in, in uh, they went with hardly any money and they would eat whatever was People gave them sometimes, mm. I think. There was a lot of hospitality. But they would go to Morocco, they would go to Turkey. And so they came back wanting to do that kind of food. And so also it was nourishing. There was chickpeas and lentils and vegetables. So it was also a generation that didn't really learn from their mothers. Mm. And uh, there wasn't this enthusiasm for cooking. Mm. And so for them, it was a discovery, but it was the kind of food that was cheap mm. and, and what they really dreamt of because they, they went to those countries. Yeah. But I did start realizing that it had made a difference when the restaurants started telling me. Mm. Uh, but also Marks and Spencer would call me to tell me, can you come and taste? And then also we knew people were giving for tea the same filo pastries with cheese that we had, the exact same one. I mean, <laughs> and that must they, have been they had got a company to make them. What Marks and Spencer had? Yeah. From your book? Yes. Claudia. And their book was there. Uh, the only book they had in there when they called me. So and did they call you to come in as a compliment or like how did you feel about that? I was a bit unhappy uh, and my mother would go to somebody's and she said, I can't believe uh, they bought, uh, you know, those filos. Yeah. And, but also they had tagines 
at the time they were trying tagines mm. and they said do you think it's a bit too sweet you know I had to tell them on the one hand I'm feeling like it would be a huge compliment and you're you'd be very happy that the food is spreading yes. and that you know people yeah. are enjoying those in their houses but then at the I just know personally I would just be feeling like cross that you know yeah. they were using my yeah. recipe especially see, a big company uh, you see I wasn't into uh, uh, commercial, I I should have been, mm. you know, early on. Claudia, uh, you could uh, be but, like Elon Musk. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, but I was of uh, an attitude that women should not work. Mm. Even when I was at school in Paris, uh, it was my younger brother who was 11 who went to the bank to collect some money and gave me money for my train really? to school. Wow. They'd give to the boy. But also, we were brought up that we do things for free. Mm. I'm still mm. doing things for free most of the time, if my agent lets me. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> That's interesting. So that was just the culture of, of yeah. how you grew up. That you, Which is hard to outgrow. Yes. At. Exactly. Mm. I mean, I have outgrown it to yeah. a degree. <laughs> but, uh, I'm very glad to hear that. But it is, uh, you deserve it all. But I was also happy when Sainsbury's mm. phoned to say, what should we stock? And I said, what about bulgur? What about um, couscous? What about... I had a whole list which they got. But it is really others who have made it fashionable, mm. not me. It would be Yotam Otolengi. That's, it very, would be that's very modest, Claudia. Because they, they actually produce it as well. Mm. We're going to pause there and talk about the fourth desert island dish. Claudia, what is your favourite sandwich? The favourite sandwich is an open sandwich with a tiny pepper in a jar. Ooh. Now, uh, piquillo pepper mm. from Spain. Mm. And, uh, and I put a pepper... I put three olives and I put one anchovy. Mm. And I just put olive oil on the bread. And that's my very favorite. That sounds gorgeous. Yeah. Is it toast or is it bread? I do toast it a bit. Mm. Yeah. That sounds lovely. I is usually that... burn it. So. <laughs> well, that adds to it, doesn't it? <laughs> is that something that you created or is that something that you had i had in spain yeah there's nothing wrong with a good jar mm. so it can just be here and i can just take out an anchovy mm. and take out and i adore anchovies i think it's true there is a sort of um snobbiness about jarred food but i think quite wrongly but i think they're the same with frozen food i think there's a lot yes. of snobbiness around yes. that and now i think uh, people are talking about frozen food can be better yeah. than any tin or jar yeah because they don't need to uh, they to lock put, in that uh, freshness straight away but i know you're obviously very passionate about food, um, but it is also very much the people and the stories behind yeah. the food. And I read that you would go to the Iranian embassy and they'd ask you if you were there to get a visa. Yeah. And you'd say no. And instead <laughs> you'd sit down and you'd ask the people waiting for their recipes. And when I read that, I just thought that's such a brave thing to do. Yeah. I think I think that's not something that everyone could have done, yeah. you know, talking to strangers. And I wondered what proportion of the time 
were people really willing to share and to talk to you yes. compared to did you ever have occasions of of when people yeah. just said actually no I, I don't want to yeah. give you a recipe never <laughs> that never happened never. Uh, ever never but I didn't do it in England okay well I know because <laughs> I read of course it was England uh, yeah. but um, I think at that time it was a different time mm. when I started going. Uh, now there are too many people everywhere, mm. but also now everybody has a mobile phone. But I mm. would accost people in a train. I did a lot of finding out things. And did you train. find that very easy to just start yes, speaking to strangers? Because people at the time were so pleased to talk to somebody. Mm. Uh, but also they were pleased that you were interested in their food. How would you pick your Look, target? How did you know it was someone that you might want to speak yeah, to? It was always women uh. because I was only researching home cooking. I wasn't mm -hmm. going, I was eating in restaurants mm -hmm. because when you travel, that's what you do mostly. Uh, but mainly it was women. Sometimes it was men who butted in. And But in that time, men didn't cook, even in Italy. Oh, but they, they had an opinion now. about it. They knew all about yeah. it, <laughs> and they do, and because they have to keep their women on their toes. <laughs> you know. But mainly when I was traveling, I was asking, where are your parents uh, from which region? Because mm. I was doing regional foods, not only home cooking, but regional home mm. cooking. And it was it also created... A little story. It means mm. people would join in who would say, I don't do it like that. But for me, that was also part of the pleasure mm. because I think I had been a single mother for quite a few years, not that many, but when my youngest was still six, well, my eldest was 11. Uh, and uh, I had been at home with them, I had never left them except when they went on holiday for two weeks <laughs> yeah, or something. And uh, I would then go somewhere. So I was used to Egypt where people talk to each other and to, to be with a lot of people mm. and to be easily speaking mm. in different languages to, this, to, uh, to anybody. Mm. So and when you say this process and method that you had wouldn't have worked if you tried to speak to people on the train in England. They'd think you why, were mad. But why? That made me sad when I read that because I immediately knew that you were right and I felt sad about yeah. it. But why is that? Yes, I think now too they wouldn't. Mm. I think if I was in Oxford or in Cambridge and I'm sure there all the students will be glad to talk and there are places like in a pub or, or where you go where you know people love food in Borough Market or, mm. or something, uh, you could. But otherwise they'd think you were mad <laughs> and they'd just think, God, let's get Leave away from it. <laughs> <laughs> let's talk about the fifth desert island dish. What's the dish you eat the most often? Well, every day I eat vegetables mm. as part of my meal. Okay. And sometimes it's the whole meal. But I am uh, not vegetarian, mm. but I do love vegetables. And it can be grilled or roasted. But I buy lots and then I decide. I've got them in the fridge, for instance. Which, what should I do? 
But very often, and most often, it's really greens. And all I do is put a little bit of extra virgin olive oil and salt and pepper. And I feel just happy eating that. Yeah, so simple, but so good. Delicious. It's been said of you that you're a proper food writer who understands the reasons behind food. You love cooking and entertaining, and the magic of Claudia comes from her heart and soul. Which part, I wondered, of what you do has been the most important to you? Is it about the food or is it about the people? And if you had to divide the two, which I know is impossible, yeah. but which of those two would you pick? Yeah, it's the people. Yeah. yeah. And uh, now I feel uh, that the most pleasurable thing at my age is to invite people over and friends. Mm. It's always friends. But also, I have met a wide, a large number of people abroad, mm. and they keep coming. And for instance, this weekend, I had somebody from Yale. I was at Yale for a semester as a visiting fellow. Oh, wow. And this woman, uh, I was so happy when she said, I'm coming, I'm going to Cambridge, can I stay with you for a night? And we just cooked and ate. And uh, and I just think, for me, the cooking is a pleasure. Mm. And it's a pleasure, physical pleasure, and therapeutic. I don't like the word therapeutic, because for me, it's just pleasure. Mm. And I feel to cook, to peel, to do... Um, I, I even happy washing up. I don't mind washing up, but uh, it's a um, oh dear. You're welcome to mine anytime <laughs> you want. <laughs> but uh, but yes, this uh, of course it has to be good food. Mm. If I'm doing it, some people are afraid to invite you to dinner, but I'm happy. Well, I was going to ask that. Do you think people are a bit intimidated to? Mm. Ask they you say around? they are, but mm. then I'm so happy to eat their food that they soon find that. I'm happy with that. Yeah. <laughs> One thing that struck me was something that I read um, Yotam Ottolenghi said, where he said that he's often credited with introducing Middle Eastern ingredients to the UK and that he's always very quick to assure people that actually it was you, but that it took some people... 35 years or so to really realize how brilliant yeah. these ingredients are and these recipes. Why do you think there was a time lag of 35 or so uh, years? Yes, it, it took a long time because mm. it came out more than 50 years ago, 55 years ago. So it is a long time. Uh, I suppose society changed mm. and very much. Um, but um, also, I think. What happened more recently, it is because of your time, Otoleng, because he has made it fashionable. Mm. And uh, people want to eat what is fashionable. Mm. And, uh, and it spreads very quickly, immediately. But uh, I think he's right in terms of, and this is true in so many aspects of life, you, you never do something individually. Like he's building on the success that you pay, you know, you built the foundations yeah. and then he's building yes. on that. Which and is... I do feel that now I keep meeting people who say, my grandmother cooked from your... Mm -hmm. So that kind of food, I'm meeting them all the time now. Mm. I read that you were quoted as saying, 
before you wrote your latest book, you didn't think the world would be interested in another book from you. And it struck me that so often I think people don't realize what they mean to other people when we were talking earlier and you mentioned that you'd received some awards in the last few years and that had kind of given you an inkling as to how important you are but before that you had no idea so I did just want to take this opportunity to tell you on behalf of everybody listening um, that the world will always be interested in your books and you could never give us enough so I just wanted to let you know that it is so so kind and so wonderful to hear that it's definitely true it seems unbelievable (laughs) (laughs) we're gonna pause there and talk about the sixth desert island dish what's your go-to dinner party dish for quite a while it's been slow cooked shoulder of lamb Mm. and I do it in different ways very often just the meat itself is so good I've got a shop here a Turkish shop that sells meat that they just cut and and it is so good to taste but I do have some flavorings that I put Mm. Um, it could be cinnamon and allspice for instance or uh, I've done one with a date syrup and uh, I've done uh, with an apricot sauce, Mm. which was something in my family. We did a lot of meat with apricot. And so it's dried apricots that I boil and then blend into a sauce. But now more lately, I do a lot of uh, roast duck legs because they're easy. Mm. You just put them in. And there again... I do them with fruit because I'm part of the tradition that goes back to ancient Persia. You know, the the, uh, 13th century books that exist now that a lot of people have now studied in great depth. I studied them, I found them in the British Library and places... um, 60 years, 65 years ago, wow. and I used to cook medieval dishes. And I used to find that they are like the dishes that we cooked at home. Amazing. That made me think, oh, this is who we are. Mm. We've been there such a long time. We were still cooking the the dishes that, you know, meet with dates, meet with apricots, meet with... And so... Uh, they are celebratory dishes of the Middle East, of the of North Africa. When it's a celebration, you do do meat with fruit. Mm. So now, for me, it's I, I'm planning a dinner for Sunday, and it's going to be duck legs, but with prunes. Oh, delicious! <laughs> and what would you serve with something like that? Yes, it could be all kinds of things, mm. but it could be couscous, mm. it could be bulgur, and it could be potatoes. Mm. Which, what will it be on Sunday? On Sunday, I'm still thinking. Okay. <laughs> it takes a long time for me to decide the whole well, yeah. meal. In the past, I used to do a lot of work, doing <laughs> days of work, doing mezes, mm. doing many dishes, because also it's my opportunity to test them, yes, to see true. how people like them. Yeah. And so I did so much, and I invited a lot of people. But now I do the easiest, and I find a way of making what could be difficult, mm. was difficult, I find a way of making it easy. 
And the, in that way, I change it. Yeah. Just in the way of the method, because I'm not, I haven't got the strength yeah. anymore. And do you always serve a pudding? Yes, because I love puddings and I do love fruit. Mm. And then now I am doing a, something where there isn't so much fruit. So I'm trying to find the best, best, uh, so that it's worth putting a lot of sugar in you. Mm, yeah, it's Only true. when it's really it's good. Be worth it, yeah. <laughs> and I just found one the other day and I thought, oh, this is... Is it a top secret? It is. Okay. <laughs> Stay tuned. Watch this space. Now, on Desert Island Dishes, we have a cookbook corner. So I'd love to know, what is your most treasured cookbook? I have a huge collection. Okay. Uh, but... I can't think. Okay. Because <laughs> they are pick. so good. Yeah. There is a lot. Mm. I've got too many. Okay. But I keep receiving. Okay. How, how many do you think you have? My study is on top of here and it's as big as this. Every wall <gasps> has and all the floor has. Over a thousand. Oh, yes. Yeah. Can you whittle it down to a few of your favourite writers? I think I like a lot of writers whom I also have become friends with. Mm. Uh, for instance, Fuchsia Dunlop, mm. since I've known her since she's her first book. And, um, and of course, I do like Yotam. Mm. I do like the Clarks. Yeah. I like everything they do. And I do like Honey and Co., mm. Jacob Kennedy. And, uh, uh, and I do love, actually, the River Cafe I was wondering, in one of the things that I read, it said that I think it was an Elizabeth David book that was one of the first yes. books that you really yes. read and oh, yes. fell in love with. Is uh, that I an think the original one? books that I feel I really value, Elizabeth David. And um, that's how I started to know how to write a recipe. Mm. But also, she inspired the way that you could write more mm. than just a recipe. And also Jane Grigson, very, very much. I really adored her and I loved the way she wrote. I think I'm not using them anymore. Okay. But I could go and see what did she say about this fruit or because I'm looking elsewhere for my research. Yeah. But for inspiration about how to do things, they were top. Yeah. And I also had a French book that it was called Mar uh, Tante Marie. Oh, yeah. And it was now, until now, I go back there to see how does she make the pancake. Oh, really? The crepe. Yeah. And that page has come out because I've used it for so, so long. Claudia, we're on to the final seventh desert island dish. What is the last dish you would choose to eat before being cast off to the desert island? It would have to be my mother's. And it is something that she did every Friday night. Mm. And she called it chicken sofrito. Mm. And it's kind of braised chicken. She did three whole chickens. She cut them up. And uh, it was with lemon, garlic, turmeric, cardamom. Mm. Yes, she would not do any other thing on Friday night. Wow. Uh, she did... A side thing would be an artichoke thing and a broad bean and a, uh, but it was always the same dishes. And uh, when she 
decided she would not cook anymore mm. because my younger brother died before he was not yet 50. Oh. So it really killed her. But she died not very long after. But she stopped cooking. So I started doing the Friday night and the Passover. And then I would make things that I, you know, from Iraq, from Morocco, from... And my father said, don't try anything on us, oh. please. <laughs> we only want the chicken. <laughs> yes. <laughs> you know. Oh, so, I mean, that says a lot about her love for cooking, that the passion for that just completely died after your brother died. Yes. She just wouldn't do anything. Yeah. And she didn't want to... Well, she didn't want to eat, I think, also, but, yeah... yeah. Before you go to the island, you are allowed a pudding. What would be your final oh, pudding? I think it's the last pudding, yeah. and I can tell you, okay. I suppose, but <laughs> it is called Halawet el Jibn, and it is uh, Lebanese, Syrian, mm -hmm. and I never thought I could do it. Uh, I tried before, but it is very complex, but it is a cheese pudding. Uh, it is a an Arab cheese, which mm. you can't get here, at least I can't get, and it's cooked with semolina, mm. and then it's stuffed with clotted cream, oh and uh, and then there's ricotta on top. But the thing is, there was a whole big deal of how to roll it out to make it like a like a crust, like a thing, mm. and then you stuff it with. Actually, the Arab uh, cream is thicker and harder than clotted cream even. And how to do it was, I just thought, no, however much I tried it in, I found a way of making it easy. Oh, amazing. And then I served it to people, and they said, God, yeah. Oh, so, that's very exciting. <laughs> okay, so that's something we can look forward to in the next book. Claudia Roden, those were your Desert Island dishes. Thank you so much. Thank you very, very much. So there we have it, another delicious day of Desert Island Dishes. Don't forget that you can rate, review and subscribe to the podcast on iTunes. It really does make such a difference. It boosts the show in the charts and helps others to find it, which is great and ultimately means that I can keep bringing it to you each week. If you don't already, then come and follow me on Instagram at Desert Island Dishes and you can sign up for the newsletter and find a whole host of different recipes at DesertIslandDishes.co. Thank you again to H.G. Walter, our sponsor for this month of Desert Island Dishes, and I will see you next week. Thank you so much for listening. Bye.